With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you very much for joining us. I hope everyone is doing well and enjoying the sudden barrage of football. We've got a jam-packed episode for you today. In part one, we'll briefly cover the latest news around Serie A and Napoli. Then we'll spend a good amount of time recapping Serie A and the other major leagues in Europe. And since I'm a bit of a hipster, I'm also going to cover Serie B and Serie C. Then in part two, we'll review Napoli's match on Sunday against Spau. And in part three, we'll preview Napoli's match, which is on Thursday against Atalanta. So starting with the news, on Thursday there was a meeting of the Federal Council where a number of decisions were made. The most important was the recognition of women's football as a professional football league starting in the 2022-2023 campaign. The council also formally awarded the women's Serie A title to Juventus, while Tavagnaco and Orobica will be relegated. Napoli were awarded the Serie B title and San Marino was also promoted, while Noves and Perugia were relegated to Serie C. Serie B was also increased to 14 clubs and the Coppa Italia was increased to 26 clubs. The 2020-2021 season will commence on August 22nd to accommodate the Euro 2022 qualification matches, which will be played in September. The FIGC also decided to temporarily adjust its rule that prohibits a player from playing for three different clubs in one season, and they did that because of COVID-19. Sofian Amrabat, for example, could not join Fiorentina this season because he had already played for Club Bruges and Hellas Verona. The main reason for the change is because the various different leagues will likely commence on different dates. In January, this rule will revert back to how it is written today. Moving on to Napoli, Jose Callejon has reportedly signed an extension to the end of the season without earning a salary. 
Gattuso commented after the Spa match, he said, I'm happy with the signatures of Mertens and Callejon. Jose could not erase his history in a moment after so many years in the blue. He gave me a lot. The president and the company, by paying him the insurance policy until August, made an important gesture. According to La Repubblica, it was Gattuso and Callejon's teammates who convinced the Spaniard to postpone his farewell until the end of August. Hopefully, by then, matches will be played in front of spectators, so Callejon can get the sending off he deserves. In transfer news, Gianluca Di Marzio is reporting that Roma's Chenzig Under is at the top of Gattuso's list of replacements, and that negotiations are ready, and that we're just waiting for Napoli and Roma to agree. On the topic of transfers, we got a question from our friend Eddie. Eddie's been combing the transfer market for potential Napoli signings. He says Adil Ushish will be available on a Bosman from PSG. He's a young attacking midfielder who might be a nice bench alternative to Almas, maybe more in the future thoughts. The reason Eddie suggests Oshish could be an alternative to Almas and perhaps more in the future is because he's only 17 years old, though he'll be 18 on July 15th. So for this one, I reached out to the only Liga expert that I know, George Rodriguez, and George was kind enough to refer me to the folks at PSG Talk. Both are excellent follows on Twitter. You can find George at jrod2589. George is also the admin for the North American Lyon account at ol underscore adn, and he knows Olympic Lyonnais inside out. You can find PSG Talk at PSG Talk and the PSG Talking podcast, which I've subscribed to and I suggest you do too. According to PSG Talk, Oshish has loads of potential. He was a standout player for France's U17 squad at both the European Championships and the World Cup. However, he struggled for time at PSG because of the quality in the squad. He's not quite as talented as Tangi Kouassi, but he's a player who, if given the opportunity and if developed properly, could be a very solid attacking midfielder. He's a lethal passer of the ball, and he can also finish. So I think Eddie hit this one out of the park. If you listen to this podcast regularly, you know that with the current squad, I prefer for Napoli to sign younger players at lower prices that they could potentially develop to succeed the current starters. Oshish fits that mold perfectly. You could see a natural progression where if Napoli sell Fabian, then perhaps Elmas steps up into that role and Oshish plays as a backup role to Zielinski and Elmas, or potentially replaces Elmas as a starter, maybe even Zielinski if we sell him four or five years down the road. PSG Talk added that if Napoli sign him, our fans won't be disappointed, and in fact, most PSG fans are sad to see him leave. The only challenge is Arsenal are also interested in the young midfielder, so this could become a bidding war. So great work on that one, Eddie, and thanks as always for the question. Okay, so next let's do a recap of the major leagues. Like I said, we're going to spend quite a bit of time on Serie A. Then we'll quickly recap the last two rounds of Serie B, and I'll provide a brief update on the Serie C playoffs. Then we'll quickly go over the results in the Premier League, La Liga, and the Bundesliga. So round 28 of Serie A began on Friday with Juventus hosting Lecce at the Allianz. Juve won this match 4-0. This still wasn't Juve's best performance. They missed a few clear opportunities in the first half. In the 32nd minute, Fabio Lucioni was shown a straight red. This was the correct decision if you're the last man back and you foul the opposition, in this case Bentancur, who's clear to the goal, it's a red card. After that, it was only a matter of time before Juve scored. Lecce barely touched the ball in the second half. Though Juve had an extra man, I do feel like this club is improving game by game, and that select individuals are improving game by game as well. 
Midweek, we saw Bernardeschi have an excellent match. This game, I thought Rabiot actually had a decent half. Bentancourt, Delete, and Dybala all continued to play very well. Even though Ronaldo's struggling to score, he's still contributing all over the pitch. He laid the ball off for Dybala on his goal, he converted the penalty, and he created the Iguain goal. With Iguain back, Juve's depth is improving again, at least in the attack. And this is what Juve does probably better than any other team in Serie A. Even when they don't play that well, they get the three points. And since this was the first match of the round, the win put pressure on Lazio and Inter to win their matches to avoid falling even further back in the table. Lazio were up first on Saturday, and this was a really entertaining match. Lazio got the job done at the end of the day, but just barely. I thought Fiorentina were the better side in this match, and it was really one that was about momentum. Right from the start of the match, the field was quite open. Lazio defended pretty deep and allowed Fiorentina to run at them on the counterattack. Frank Ribery, who I thought was the man of the match, opened the scoring in the first half with a brilliant solo effort. And you can't fault Lazio too much for this when you just have to tip your hat to Ribery. If you had to criticize Lazio for something on this goal, I suppose it would be for allowing the build-up. Lazio were really sitting back and allowing the play to come to them. At this point in the match, Fiorentina seemed like the more energetic of the two clubs. Lazio had a strong finish to the half and should have been awarded a penalty for a handball in the box by Badelli. I saw all kinds of comments on Twitter about the Caicedo dive, which we'll get to in a bit, but no one was really talking about this missed call. And this missed call is really frustrating for me. Despite being Napolitano, I try not to shit on Juventus too much. A lot of people, certainly a lot of Napolitano people, complain that Juve gets too many of the penalty calls. For the most part, I think those decisions have been correct, but it's missed calls like these that really fuel those complaints. Strakosha made a couple of key saves in the second half, one on Castrovilli in the opening minute of the half, and then a few minutes later, he just barely got his fingertips on a shot from Getzal that hit the bar and stayed out. Fiorentina were passing the ball very confidently, and you could see the frustration in Lazio's players, particularly Sergei Milinkovic-Savage and Ciro Immobile. I thought Lazzari was the only one creating anything, so I was a little perplexed when Simone Inzaghi took him off. That said, Lazzari's decision-making was poor, though it wasn't entirely his fault. There was one player where he did really well to create space on the wing, and went for goal when he probably should have played the cross. Shortly after that, he created space again and probably should have shot, but because his teammates threw their arms in the air the first time, this time he tried to square the ball and nothing came of it. The momentum swung the other way in the 67th minute when Fabri awarded Lazio a penalty. The Twitter reaction to this was accurate. This was an awful call. Caicedo threw himself to the ground before Dragovski got there. VAR reviewed the play, but with these calls, so long as there's the slightest bit of contact, which there was, the call will not get overturned. But I guess you can call this a makeup call for the missed penalty call in the first half. Immobile converted the penalty, scoring his 28th goal of the season. From that point on, momentum was very much in Lazio's favor. Lazio looked more physically fit in this match than they did against Atalanta. Luis Alberto put Lazio ahead 2-1 with an accurate low shot in the 83rd minute, and that's how this one ended. Fiorentina did not deserve to walk away from this match empty-handed. Despite Immobile and Alberto scoring, I thought Lazio's big three were underwhelming once again. All in all, this was another unimpressive performance from Lazio, but that's okay because Juventus hasn't been that impressive either, and they've won both of their matches. With the win, Lazio remained four points back of Juve. Simone Inzaghi tied Sven-Goran Eriksson for most managerial wins in club history, but Inzaghi wasn't there to celebrate this accomplishment on the field as he was shown a red card just before the end of the match. Finally, if I'm Rocco Camiso, 
I'm selling Federico Chiesa as fast as I can because the team looked just fine without him in the lineup, not to mention being without Cáceres. Like Lazio, Inter were very fortunate to walk away with three points against Parma. Inter's back three really struggled to defend Parma's front three. This was a completely different backline than the one that started against Sassuolo. Ranocchia, Bastoni, and Skriniar started against Sassuolo, while Godin, De Rai, and D'Ambrosio started this match. D'Ambrosio struggled with Gervinho's pace, De Rai struggled with Andreas Cornelius' strength, and Godin struggled with Kusevsky's pace and creativity. Harma moved the ball really well and created excellent scoring opportunities, but their finishing was poor, so they really only have themselves to blame for the loss. Gervinho missed a golden opportunity early in the match after Kulusevsky played a ridiculous backheel flick to complete a 1-2 with Laurini, who squared for Gervinho. Gervinho created all kinds of problems for Inter's defense, and he did score after Kuchka picked him out with a perfect long ball. Gervinho did really well to receive the pass, cut back, and finish. Andreas Cornelius missed two excellent scoring opportunities in the first half as well. Early in the second half, Inter did have a short spell of positive play, but with the field opened up, Parma had the better opportunities. Credit to Inter though for staying with it, even though they were not having their best day. In the span of a few minutes, Inter equalized, Kuchka was shown a red card for descent, and then Inter went ahead. The goals came from the unlikeliest of scores in Stefan de Bruyne and Alessandro Bastoni, both on headers. I don't know what Parma were doing on the Bastoni goal, he was left completely unmarked in front of the goal. So with the win, Inter remain 8 points back of Juve. Rounding out the top 4, Atalanta defeated Udinese 3-2, but we'll talk more about that match in part 3. Besides Napoli Spa, which we'll talk about in part 2, Roma and Milan was the match that I was most excited for on this match day, and boy did they let me down. This was probably the least entertaining match of the week. Granted, it was the early match and Milano was 32 degrees Celsius, which is nearly 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Neither side had any sense of urgency in the first half, and I thought the commentator put it best at the end of the first half when he said that neither side deserved the lead. In the second half, Milan were by far the better squad, and they were rewarded for their positive play with an anti-Rebic goal. Then in the closing minutes of the match, Milan were awarded a penalty and Chalanoglu scored to put this one away. So Milan have now won both of their matches since football resumed, and I wonder at what point they start considering giving Pioli an extension. I think you could certainly make a case for it, one reason being to avoid making the same mistake twice with letting Gattuso go. Meanwhile, Roma did not show up at all. They were really, really disappointing, especially when you consider that given the club's dire financial situation, Roma desperately needed to play in Europe. They probably need to play in Champions League, never mind Europa League, to get their finances in order. I think Fonseca has done an admirable job managing this club with all the drama around the failed sale to Friedkin and more recently the suspension of sporting director Gianluca Petracchi. But if Roma do not qualify for Europa League, the damage will be long-lasting. The club will probably have to sell its star players, perhaps even at a discount, just to get its finances in order, so I wouldn't be surprised to see Roma become a mid-table team for the next few years. With that win, Milan are now 6 points back of Roma, they remain 3 points back of Napoli, and with Inter beating Parma, they are now 3 points clear of Parma. Another team that's in the race for the Europa League is Hellas Verona, who played against Sassuolo. This was a crazy match. Other than a number of Sassuolo set pieces, the first half was fairly uneventful and was mostly played in the middle third of the pitch. Neither side registered a single shot on target in the half. For the Napoli Tifosi, Amir Rahmani had a really strong half. He dominated play in the air. 
His defensive partner Marashku. His defensive partner Marash Kumbula picked up a yellow, so he'll miss Verona's next match against Parma, which is a big one and a huge loss for Verona. The second half, though, was a completely different story. Lazovic opened the scoring in the 51st minute with a screamer from outside the box, but Sassuolo came right back and equalized on a strike by Jeremy Boga, who had come on at the break. Then only three minutes after that goal, Verona went back up, Mariusz Stupinski chested in a cross from Lazovic, Matteo Pessina added a third in the 68th minute after Peluso cleared a ball into his own teammate Burabia. But as we saw last round against Inter, you can never count this Sassuolo team out. Boga pulled one back in the 77th minute. He was really excellent in this match. Every time he touched the ball, he looked dangerous. His pace was too much for Verona to handle, and he can create space with his quick feet. Even though you know he's going to cut into his right foot, he's still very difficult to stop. Sassuolo threw everything at Verona in the final 10 minutes. Silvestri made a couple of big saves on Defrel and Obiang, and Sassuolo had a few near misses as well. But Verona could not hold them down forever. In the final minute of added time, Rogerio scored a golazzo from well outside the box that he tucked just inside the upright. As good as Silvestri was in this match, no one was going to stop this shot. Sassuolo definitely deserved a point. In fact, they probably deserved all three points. In the span of a few days, Sassuolo have stolen points from Inter and Verona in the final minutes. Meanwhile, it's been a rough restart for Verona. Last match, they deserved a better result against Napoli and walked away empty-handed. Then this match, even though Sassuolo were the better squad, Verona were only one minute away from taking all three points. Through two matches, Verona have only one point to show for it. At the bottom of the table, Brescia hosted Genoa. Both sides showed us why they're in the positions they're in. Both clubs have good pieces, Brescia have Tonali and Donnarumma, Genoa have Romero and Sumaoro, both of whom are linked to Napoli. I like Christian Zapata, and between Pinamonti, Sanabria, and Pandev, you would expect their attack to be better. The match finished 2-2, which I thought was a fair result. This was really a game of phases. Brescia were the better club in the first quarter, Donnarumma and Semprini scored two quick goals to give Brescia a two-goal lead. After the break, Genoa took over and they were the better team until about the final quarter of the match. Genoa had plenty of opportunities, but they were only able to convert from the penalty spot. Iago Falcan and Andrea Pinamonti did well on their penalty kicks, but other than that, finishing from both clubs in the second half was really poor. Another club in the relegation battle is Sampdoria. They lost 2-1 to Bologna. Spal and Brescia are almost certainly going to be relegated, but there's quite the battle to avoid the third relegation spot. Lecce are currently sitting in that third relegation spot on 25 points, but Genoa and Sampdoria are both on 26 points, and Udinese is on 28 points. Fiorentina and Torino are far from safe as well on 31 points. Rounding out the matches, Cagliari looked like the team we saw at the beginning of the season defeating Torino 4-2. Nandez had another great game, he scored a beautiful volley, and he won a penalty with an impressive run, but VAR overturned the decision. Rajdan Nangolan returned to this match, and he scored a typical Nangolan goal in the second half with a long-distance strike with his left foot that he hit low and hard to the far post. Credit to Torino for not giving up after going down 3-0. After the Nengolan goal, Torino looked like the better squad. In a span of six minutes, Gleason Bremer and Andrea Belotti both scored to get Torino back in the match. Belotti scored a lovely volley off a corner kick. I'm not sure how Caliday left Torino's top scorer unmarked. But only a few minutes later, Luca Pellegrini baited Nicolas Nkulu into fouling him in the box, and Jao Pedro put the penalty and the match away. Moving on to Serie B, 
We had two match days since our last episode, so let's start with match day 30. Benevento had an opportunity to guarantee themselves a promotion to Serie A with a victory over Empoli, which would have been the first time in the 88-year history of the league that a club earns promotion with eight rounds to go. However, Benevento only managed a draw, so people in Zaghi's men had to wait until Monday to try again. Fortunately for Benevento, their immediate competition didn't win either. Second place Crotone drew Perugia 0-0, and third place Frosinone lost 2-0 to fifth place Cittadella. Meanwhile, Spezia defeated Chievo 3-1, so both Spezia and Cittadella hopped over Frosinone in the table. The top eight at that point were, in order, Benevento and Crotone in the promotion spots, and La Spezia, Cittadella, Frosinone, Portanone, Salernitana, and Chievo in the promotion playoff zone. But that could easily change because of how tight the middle of the table is. Five clubs were within three points of Kevo in eighth spot. At the bottom of the table, the gap between the relegation clubs and the relegation playoff zone was reduced. The bottom three teams all won their matches. Livorno defeated Juve Stabia 3-2. Trapani defeated Pordenone 3-0. And Cosenza defeated Cremonese 2-0. Venezia moved into safety by defeating Ascoli 2-1. And with that loss to Cosenza, Cremonese dropped into the relegation playoff zone. Rounding out the midweek matches, Pisa defeated Pescara 2-1 and Antella beat Salernitana 1-0. Match day 31 was played on Monday, so Benevento got another opportunity to earn their promotion to Serie A in a derby against Juve Stabia. After Luca Caldirola was shown a straight red, it looked like Benevento would have to continue to wait, but Marco Sao scored in the 71st minute and Benevento just barely held on for the 1-0 win. With that win, Li Stragoni guaranteed themselves a return to Serie A, and at the same time, they won the Serie B championship. Second place, Crotone drew Ascoli 1-1, and third place, Cittadella defeated Perugia 2-0, so they are now level on 52 points. La Spezia stayed in fourth despite losing 2-1 to Pisa. Pordenone defeated Antella to hop over Frosinone, who dropped to sixth after losing 2-0 to Chievo. With that win, Chievo hopped over Salernitana, who now sit in the final promotion playoff spot after drawing Cremonese 1-1. And with Pisa's win, they now move up to ninth. At the bottom of the table, Trapani and Cosenza, who were the second and third from bottom of the table respectively, drew each other to remain in those positions. Ascoli and Cremonese remain in the relegation playoff spots. And rounding up the day, Venezia beat Livorno 2-0 and Pescara drew Empoli 1-1. In Serici, the relegation playoff commenced. Last time I explained how the promotion playoff works, but I didn't explain the relegation playoff too well, but it's much simpler. A total of 9 teams are relegated, 3 from each group. The bottom team in each group is automatically relegated, so that's Gozzano, Rimini, and Rieti. The playouts are done by group, so 16th place plays against 19th, and 17th place plays against 18th, so there are a total of 6 ties and the losers all get relegated. The first legs were played on Saturday. In Group A, Pionese drew Pergolatesse 0-0, and Olbia defeated Gianna Arminio 1-0. In Group B, Imolese defeated Arzignano 2-1, and Fano defeated Ravenna 2-0. And in Group C, Rende defeated Picerno 1-0, and Leonzo defeated Bichelia 1-0. The second legs will be played on Tuesday, and the promotion playoff will commence on Tuesday as well, with Padova playing San Benedettese in Group B. In England, there weren't too many Premier League games this week because of the quarterfinals of the FA Cup, so we'll do a full roundup next episode. In Spain, Barcelona once again put in a disappointing performance away from home on Saturday, drawing Celta Vigo 2-2. That was a huge point for Celta Vigo at the bottom of the table. Real Madrid capitalized on Sunday, defeating last place Espanyol, so Real are now two points clear of Barcelona for top spot. 
Third place, Atlético Madrid defeated Alavesh 2-1 to pull four points clear of Sevilla, who drew Valladolid 1-1 on Friday. Villarreal won yet again, defeating Valencia 2-0 to move ahead of Hetafe for a day, but Hetafe beat Sociedad on Monday to reclaim fifth spot. At the bottom of the table, Mallorca lost 3-1 to Bilbao, Leganes lost 2-1 to Osasuna, and Espanyol lost to Real Madrid. Mallorca, who is third from the bottom, are now eight points back of Celta Vigo, so it does look like Mallorca, Leganes, and Osasuna are going to be relegated. Rounding out the matches, Levante defeated Real Betis 4-2 and Ibar defeated Granada 2-1. Finally, the German Bundesliga completed its final match day of the season. Most of these matches were just formalities. Leipzig defeated Augsburg to guarantee themselves the Champions League spot. Fourth place was up for grabs, but Mönchengladbach defeated Hertha Berlin to secure their spot in the Champions League, so Leverkusen's 1-0 win over Mainz didn't make a difference. At the bottom of the table, Dusseldorf and Paderborn will be relegated and Stuttgart and Armenia Belfield will be promoted from the Zweitliga. For our regular listeners, if you're wondering why Belfield sounds familiar, it's because Diego Demme played with them when they were still in the German 3rd Division or Dritte Liga before he moved to Paderborn and then to Leipzig. Werder Bremen will have a chance to avoid relegation as they trounce Cologne 6-1. That win combined with a Dusseldorf loss allowed Werder Bremen to move up to third last, so they will play in the relegation playoff. And for those who don't know, the relegation playoff in Germany is a two-leg tie between the third last place team in the Bundesliga and the third place team in the Zweitliga. So that's going to do it for part one. In part two, we'll review Napoli's win over Spal. So Napoli played Spal on Sunday. We're all set. It's uh, Napoli who get the game underway, playing in their usual sky blue. When they're trying to play it inside of Mertens. Still there, Fabian Ruiz. Mertens, clear through, flicked in. And that's an early goal. Wasn't quite spotted early enough. Husay now, Cajon with a flick. Insignia. Brings it down nicely in senior with a shot. He struck the upright. His reckon out trying to stretch his legs. Does so. Could be a chance here. Petania! It's a goal and an equaliser from Spal. Immediately after Insignia had struck the post, Spal went up the other end and scored a goal of their own. In defence, but here's Cajon all alone. Cajon picks his spot and he's picked it well. Cajon restores Napoli's advantage. 2-1 now to the home side. Fabian Ruiz over the top. Mertens now free. Mertens leaves this for Insigne. It's three for Napoli. Well, goal has been uh, disallowed. 
as uh, obviously there was an offside. And that's the last whistle of this half. Over to the left-hand side, Fabio Ruiz, that's a wonderful ball! He's only just come on and he scored! It's Younes with the goal! Finally, Napoli have their third goal. That's it, that's the final whistle here at the San Paolo Stadium. And Napoli have beaten Spal by three goals to one. So Napoli won this match 3-1. to one. Let's start with the lineups. Di Biagio made five changes to the squad that played against Cagliari, and he switched from the 4-3-3 to a 4-4-2. But with Strafezza being able to move up and down, the two formations played very similarly. Carlo Latizza started in goal. Arkadusz Reca started at left back over Jacopo Sala, which is what we expected. We thought Igor might start over Bonifazi, but instead Felipe did, and they were joined by Francesco Vicari and Thiago Sionek at the back. Di Biagio overhauled the midfield. We were right that Simone Misiroli would start ahead of Marco D'Alessandro, but we didn't see Alessandro Murja and Mohamed Fares starting ahead of Mirko Valdifiori and Lucas Castro. And as mentioned, Gabriel Strefezza dropped into the midfield because of the change in formation. Up top, Andrea Petagna started alongside Alberto Cherry instead of Mattia Valotti. I thought Andrea Petagna had a decent match for Spal, but I still felt like his work rate is not quite high enough for Gattuso, so that relationship will be an intriguing one next season. What he did show is that he doesn't need many opportunities to score. Gattuso made 7 changes to the starting 11 that featured in Verona, Alex Meret started over David Ospina in goal, which is what we expected. Other than the Patania goal, which he couldn't do much about, Meret was really only tested once in this match. That was on a long-range effort from Valotti that was served up on a platter by Jose Caleon. I also thought that Meret looked a little bit shaky on the ball in this one. At the back, Husai moved over to right back to give Giovanni De Lorenzo a rest, and Mario Rui started at left back. I thought Husai actually played well in this match, which was nice to see. Koulibaly and Maksimovic played in the middle, and I was a little bit surprised to see Koulibaly get the start, knowing that if he picked up a yellow, he would miss the match against Atalanta. So we were expecting to see Luperto, but it could be that Gattuso knows Koulibaly is playing really well right now, and he didn't want to disrupt that. Fortunately, Koulibaly didn't have much to do in this one, and he stayed out of Pareto's book. And then Manolas replaced Koulibaly in the 80th minute, which was good because Koulibaly got a little bit of rest and Manolas got some actual live game action. Gulam replaced Mario Rui in the 81st minute. In the midfield, we correctly predicted all three changes, which were that Lobotka would start over Demme, Almas over Zielinski, and that Fabian would return to the starting 11 after Alain started the Verona match. I was really excited to see Lobotka get the start, and I thought he did well. He's a very conservative player. He always plays the safe pass so he rarely makes a mistake, but at the same time, there were moments where I would have liked to see him pick out a run from the wingers, but instead, he would always choose the square ball. It was still difficult to assess his performance, though, because Napoli, for the most part, controlled the tempo of this match, so I think we'll need to see him play more to know what he can offer. At the moment, I haven't seen enough from him to be too confident that he could succeed them as the starting regista, but I do think he'll be able to fill in as a starter if Demme were to get hurt, or just to give them a rest with the compressed schedule. Elmas and Fabian both played well as well. Elmas played the ball over the top on the Calejon goal, and Fabian played a very similar ball over the top on the Eunice goal. I suspect we'll see this midfield play against teams in the bottom half of the table while Demme and Zielinski 
and probably Fabian will play the clubs in the top half. Up top, Gattuso started a familiar front three of Insigne, Mertens, and Callejon. We were expecting Eunice to start over Insigne, but I wouldn't be shocked if Insigne insisted on playing. Insigne had a really strong performance. He deserved the goal, but it just wasn't meant to be. In the first half, he hit the upright with a powerful shot from outside the box, and to put salt in the wound, Spal counterattacked and scored. Insigne thought he scored before the break, but VAR overturned the goal. What was really odd here was that the head official, Luca Pareto, did not look at the monitor. There was a long delay while he communicated with VAR before eventually overturning the goal. The broadcast didn't show the replay, but the call was offside, which is usually pretty black and white. Insigne nearly scored in the second half as well with an acrobatic overhead kick, and then he was later replaced by Herving Lozano in the 65th minute. Lozano earned himself more playing time with the 10 minutes he put in against Verona. Merton scored the first goal of the match with a cheeky little chip over Latitza, which is just about the only part of the score we got right. As Gattuso has done in previous matches, he replaced Mertens with Milik, who didn't really contribute much in this match. Callejon scored as well, almost as if to be rewarded for extending his contract to the end of the season. This was a vintage Callejon goal with a well-timed run to the far post. He did well to take it down and even better to fire across the goal and past Letizia. Callejon was replaced with Amin Yunus in the 76th minute, so we weren't too far off with our Yunus prediction. And again, this looked like a stroke of genius from Catuzo as Yunus scored with his first touch of the match, and he nearly scored a second one as well. So all of a sudden, Napoli seemed to have quite a bit of depth on the wings with Insigne, Politano, Callejon, Lozano, and Yunus. A few additional comments on the match. I thought Napoli looked quite comfortable controlling the tempo. At times, I felt like I was watching Saudi ball with how quickly they were moving the ball, which really shows the versatility of this club. I think they'll play this more positive style, for lack of a better term, against any club outside of the top four. For any clubs that still have to place ball, clearly playing balls over the top and towards the back post works well. Both Callejon and Eunice's goals happen this way, and Insigne's goal that was disallowed started that way as well. All in all, this felt more like a training ground match than a competitive one, so Napoli will really need to be focused for their next match against Atalanta. And speaking of which, we'll preview that match in part 3. So in the final part of the pod, we'll preview Napoli's match on Thursday against Atalanta. Let's start with Atalanta's match against Udinese. Udinese were playing without Rodrigo De Paul and Rolando Mandragora for this match. Giampiero Gasperini made a few changes to the starting 11 that played against Lazio. Caldara started over Palomino at the back. Castagna started over Gosens on the left. And Pazalic started over Martin Darun in the center left midfield position. Both keepers, Musso and Golini, were tested early in this one. Golini made an excellent save on a Fofana clear break. Then Atalanta came back the other way, and Musso made a double save on Malinowski and Papu Gomez. 
Duvan Zapata opened the scoring in the ninth minute against his former club, and you couldn't help but think we were going to witness yet another club get thrashed by Atalanta, but that's not really how this one went. Even without Tapal and Mandragora, Udinese held their own. I really like Seco Fofana in the midfield. As good as Atalanta's attack is, they do allow their opponents plenty of scoring opportunities, even bottom-of-the-table clubs like Udinese. Kevin Lasagna took one of those opportunities and equalized in the 31st minute. With the half ending 1-1, I admit, I did start to think that maybe Napoli might gain some ground on Atalanta here. Gasparini didn't wait too long to bolster his attack. He replaced Malinowski with Luis Muriel in the 52nd minute, which proved to be a wise move. I'm tempted to say what a luxury it is to be able to bring on players like Luis Muriel, Robin Gosens, Martin Darun, and Josip Ilicic off the bench, but the truth is Atalanta deserve all the credit in the world for the squad they've assembled. Between the Zingonia Academy, which is the best academy in all of Serie A, and their scouts, Atalanta seem to consistently find these diamonds in the rough. Muriel scored two beautiful goals. The first was a perfectly taken free kick up and over the wall. Musso had no chance on that one. And the second was a sweetly hit ball from just outside the box that just hovered a few feet above the turf the whole way. Kevin Lasagna scored a brace as well, and after we did our feature on Cristiano Giuntoli in episode 19, I do have a bit of a soft spot for Lasagna. If you haven't heard that episode, then definitely check it out. So Atalanta won this match 3-2, though perhaps it wasn't as convincing of a match as we've come to expect from them. A few takeaways from this match that I think are relevant to the Napoli match. First, when Udinese defended in numbers, Atalanta did struggle to break through, and we know how capable Napoli are at defending. I know Barcelona have not been their best this year, but if we can defend Barcelona like we did, then I don't see why we couldn't also defend Atalanta's attack as well. I think this match will be a bit of a matchup between the unstoppable force and the immovable object. Another thing we know about Atalanta from this Udinese match and just about every other match they've played in is that by playing so aggressively, they also expose themselves to the counterattack, and their opponents do get plenty of opportunities, and Napoli are one of the best, if not the best, counterattacking teams in the league. So let's talk about the starting lineups. I think both sides will roll out their best starting 11s. Depending on which site you check, Gasparini uses either a 3-4-1-2 or a 3-4-2-1, which are basically the same thing because of how Papu Gomez plays. I think we'll see pretty much the same starting 11 we saw Atalanta play against Lazio. Pierluigi Golini will start in goal. At the back, we should see Jose Luis Palomino, Berat Jim City, and Rafael Toloi. In the midfield, Robin Gosens, Martin Darun, Remo Freuler, and Hans Hattabor. Freuler and Hattabor have played in all three of Atalanta's matches since the restart, so I wouldn't be shocked to see Timothy Castagna start in place of one of those two. But Gasperini trains his team harder than any other manager, so they should all be fit to play. I expect the same front three as well, with Ruslan Malinowski sitting behind Duvan Zapata and Papu Gomez. Ilicic has featured as a substitute in Atalanta's last two matches, but with Atalanta 9 points clear of Roma, there's really no rush to start Ilicic. Plus, Gasperini knows that if he needs to add more firepower, he can replace Malinowski with super sub Luis Muriel. Napoli will line up in their usual 4-3-3, which is really a 4-1-4-1. David Ospina should get the start in goal. At the back, I expect to see Mario Rui, Kaladu Koulibaly, Nikola Maksimovic, and arrested Giovanni Di Lorenzo. In the midfield, Diego Deme will return as the regista after he had the opportunity to rest the match. Likewise for Piotr Zielinski, and I expect Fabian to get the start as well. 
Up top, I agree with Sky Sport that Gattuso will use the exact same front three that played against Spal, which is Insignia, Mertens, and Callejon, because that's Napoli's most dangerous front three on the counterattack. In terms of betting odds, Atalanta are currently favored at 1.1 to 1, Napoli are 2.3 to 1, and the draw is 2.6 to 1. Both sides will be playing for pride. Napoli have already qualified for the Europa League, and with Roma losing on the weekend, Atalanta are 9 points clear of Roma for the final Champions League spot. Napoli are 12 points back of Atalanta, so even if Napoli win this match, they'll still be 9 points back. Personally, I think Gattuso knows that Champions League is out of reach, but he has to talk about Champions League because De Laurentiis has now made that the goal. Atalanta have scored at least 3 goals in each of their 3 matches since Serie A restarted, but in their 7 matches against the current top 6 clubs, they've only scored 3 or more twice, which were the 2 matches against Lazio. So for those reasons, I'm going to go with a repeat of the scoreline from the first time these teams played, and that's a 2-2 draw. So that's my preview of Napoli versus Atalanta. That'll also do it for episode 22. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends, give us a 5-star rating, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you have any questions or if you'd like me to cover anything in particular, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti 5, or you can find the podcast at Pod. You can also find my work on worldfootballindex.com. I just posted an article on Sunday about the dramatic history of my father's hometown club, U.S. Avellino 1912. We'll talk to you again after the Atalanta match, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli Center. It is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.